a political cartoon from a few years ago depicts American Indians building a log wall to block a boat of pilgrims from landing on shore near a large stone labeled Plymouth Rock. The caption reads, They say they're building a wall because too many pilgrims enter illegally and won't learn their language or assimilate into their culture. Another cartoon features three panels in which a white man first tells an African-American, go back to Africa, and then tells a Latino, go back to Mexico. But in the final panel, he can only clench his fists in silence when he meets a stern-looking American Indian with his arms crossed. A final cartoon features a white man in an expensive suit yelling at a Latino family. It's time to reclaim Americans from the illegal immigrants. An American Indian responds, I'll help you pack. (laughs) One of the many historical factors at the root of these satirical cartoons is known as the doctrine of discovery. Many of us as children learned the rhyme that in 1492, some sailed the ocean blue, very good. And it was precisely around this time in the late 15th century in the so-called age of discovery that a worldview began to develop that Europe was the only civilized part of the world. Therefore, any part of the planets that Europeans conquered would do that land the favor of bringing both Christianity and a superior culture to a territory that was either unoccupied or occupied by people that the Europeans viewed as either savages or heathens. The doctrine of discovery was buttressed by the worldview of the Crusades. Papal bulls encouraged Christians to capture, vanquish, and subdue the pagans and other enemies of Christ, to put them into perpetual slavery, and to take all their possessions and property. These are direct quotes from papal bulls. Disturbingly, the doctrine of discovery, as initially articulated by rulers such as Pope Nicholas and Henry VII of England, They were later imported into the U.S. legal system in conflicts over the rights to American Indian lands, such as the 1823 um, Supreme Court case, Johnson v. McIntosh. Writing for a unanimous court, Chief Justice John Marshall observed that Christian European nations had assumed, quote, ultimate dominion over the lands of America during the age of discovery, and that upon, quote, discovery, The Indians had lost their rights to complete sovereignty as independent nations and only retained a right of occupancy in the land. As recently as 2005, the U.S. Supreme Court explicitly referenced the the doctrine of discovery in the case City of Sherrill versus the Oneida Indian Nation of New York. Quote, under the doctrine of discovery, Fee title to the lands occupied by the Indians when colonists arrived became vested in the sovereign. First, the discovering European nation, and later the original states and the United States. But what about the prior sovereignty of the original inhabitants, who were present long before the Europeans discovered the land? It seems that the word discovery is a code for might makes right. The Europeans and later the U.S. government had more power, so they set the terms of what was fair, skewing the terms in their favor. But that's a dangerous precedent to set, because there's always the danger that someone could become mightier than you in the future. 
and our bloated military budget attest to the perpetual arms race and the never-ending quest for military dominance that continues to this day because we're fearful someone else might become an employee might makes right on us. Remember those opening political cartoons? A sentence that could have come from a transcript of a contemporary debate about U.S.-Mexico borders is completely inverted when said not by U.S. citizens about U.S. immigrants, but by American Indians about European pilgrims. They say they're building a wall because too many of us enter illegally and won't learn their language and assimilate into their culture. Next week, I'll be talking some about Native American spirituality and wrestling with these issues of appropriation and reciprocity with white people using uh, Native American spirituality. But you could ask at the same time, could Europeans have been better off if they'd assimilated some of that Native American spirituality? But we'll talk more about that next week. So my question, though, is why do so many Europeans and European Americans in particular seem to either lack the historical memory that their ancestors were also immigrants who came over on a boat or lack empathy for immigrants in a parallel situation to their ancestors? Some people call illegal immigrants economic migrants or economic refugees. If a European American feels compelled to chant, go back to Africa or go back to Mexico, Shouldn't he or she also direct that aggression back at him or herself? Well, go back to Europe. As the third cartoon reminds us, if it's time to reclaim America from the illegal immigrants, many American Indians might well say, I'll help you pack. So just as the doctrine of discovery is code for might makes right, the word discovery is also code for a highly Eurocentric perspective of history that a land is only really discovered, not when the first human being finds it, but when the first European finds it. From the perspective of American Indians, the arrival of European conquerors and colonizers was what could be called a discovery with those first three letters in parenthesis, as you can see in the sermon title in your order of service. Uh, More of a dismissal and a covering over of their history humanity, and rights. Uh, I put these words, these three letters in parenthesis as a way of disrupting the meaning of this sometimes all too familiar used and abused word. The familiar meaning can allow us to too quickly and without reflection or context to say sentences such as Columbus discovered America when the historical reality is far more complex. Now, I've been thinking about these matters a lot in the past few months. As you heard earlier, Laura and I both had the opportunity um, in June to attend the annual Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, which was focused this year on immigration justice. Although GA was almost two months ago, wrestling with immigration on this Labor Day weekend is perhaps particularly appropriate, given how enmeshed the issue of immigration is with the issue of employment and jobs. In beginning to untangle these issues, one of the questions we were invited to ask at GA was, how can I respect both my own story and the story of others? That both are important, but just asking about my story is insufficient. But we can't change the history of colonization. However, listening to the stories of marginalized indigenous groups can help us begin to imagine a better way forward that accounts 
at least partially, for past injustices. Now, just as the doctrine of discovery is for the American Indians more of a discovery, a dismissal and a covering over, so too the word immigration, you'll sometimes see it written with those first two letters in parentheses, in parenthesis, to signal that some indigenous people see their ancestors not as immigrants, but as migrants. Migrant has that ancient connotation of nomadic hunter-gatherers, moving around, such as over that land bridge from Asia to North America, where they first discovered the land where we are now. Whereas immigrant has that connotation of crossing a border. But every human being's ancestors were migrants at one point before immigration ever existed, before borders ever existed. And some of these ancient migrants, the ancestors of today's American Indians, actually were the first people to discover North America. And laying out these facts can help debunk some of the unhelpful myths that cloud contemporary immigration debates and policies. And recognizing that historically we all come from migrants can also help us to be more reticent in using loaded terms like illegal immigrants. On the danger of this term, Holocaust survivor and Nobel laureate uh, Elie Wiesel has written, do not use that term illegal to refer to these immigrants. There is no such thing as an illegal human being. You may have broken an immigration law, in this case actually a misdemeanor, but that does not make you an illegal person. That's as if you had been stopped for speeding and given a ticket. Does that make you an illegal driver now? There's no such thing as an illegal human being, and it's a dangerous term to use. The Nazis declared the Jews to be an illegal people, and that was the beginning of the Holocaust. Uh, I heard that uh, quote from Elie Wiesel from Maria Hinojosa, who delivered the 2012 Ware Lecture at the, at the General Assembly. I encourage you to listen to her whole Ware Lecture, but she was clear to say, I didn't learn this in college from some radical Chicana studies professor. I learned this from Elie Wiesel. We heard Peter Morales make a similar point in this morning's spoken meditation. We must never make the mistake of confusing a legal right with a moral right. The powerful have always used the legal system to oppress the powerless. It's true that as citizens we should respect the rule of law, but more importantly, our duty is to create laws focused on our highest sense of justice, equity, and compassion. A study of the past reminds us of how historically contingent the borders that separate us are. And our Unitarian Universalist principles call us to work for a future that dissolves borders and moves towards a world community based on the conviction that every human being has inherent worth and dignity. To adapt a quote from my seminary Latina theology class, when we look at a globe or map, we should see those national borders as gaping wounds on the interdependent web of all existence, wounds that are arbitrary divisions that are crying out to be healed. Is this vision any more radical than the fullest meaning of Thomas Jefferson's vision in the Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Now, of course, we fought for more than two centuries about how, just how inclusive that word men is, right? Does it include only landed white men? 
Does it include men of all skin colors? Does men include women too? Do these self-evident truths about all men include people who are of other nations, including people who at first seem to be not like us or not from around here? In working to achieve Jefferson's egalitarian vision, it's noteworthy that at the UU 2012 General Assembly, the gathered Unitarian Universalists did vote overwhelmingly to join a number of other denominations in repudiating the doctrine of discovery. But despite the symbolic importance of this gesture, I'm unclear that there are many concrete consequences that'll follow from this repudiation. I'm not clear that this repudiation has teeth. For example, I'm sure there are indigenous people who would resist a call to move toward world community and would prefer to move toward a past vision in which their people roamed freely in places such as the the land now known by many as North America. But for better or worse, returning to that situation seems unlikely, to say the least, at this late date. Nevertheless, repudiating the doctrine of discovery is a step toward healing past colonialization. Looking toward how we can continue to move forward, I'll confess that the immigration debate, the more I look at it, the more dizzyingly complex it begins to seem. But on this point, one speaker at the UU General Assembly powerfully said, the U.S. immigration is not broken. It's not broken. It was designed to be difficult. If you do feel led to explore the issue of immigration justice further, your opinion and actions on this or any other social justice issue ultimately must be based on your own discernment and conscience. But in admitting the complexity of the situation, let me be clear that I by no means mean to imply that we should do nothing or sit on our hands or shrug our shoulders. The main lesson of the 2012 annual UU General Assembly was that we must work for social justice. And it's work, hard work, but it's good work if you can get it. This most recent General Assembly was nicknamed the Justice GA because the business sessions that are somewhat infamously long uh, were limited to the minimum required by the bylaws so that there would be time for the gathered participants not only to talk about social justice, but to actually do social justice. As with most major annual gatherings, the location for UU General Assemblies are scheduled years in advance. But as immigration policies in Arizona became increasingly harsh in recent years, concerns were raised among UUs, particularly at the 2012 GA in Minneapolis, about whether we should cancel our reservations at the Phoenix Civic Center and boycott Arizona in protest of the increasingly inhumane immigration legislation. Instead, a compromise position was reached. We would go to Arizona, but the focus would be a series of public witness events against these immigration laws to call for more humane immigration policies. I was honored to be part of the largest of these public witness events. On a Saturday evening in late June, I gathered with nearly 2,000 other Unitarian Universalists, along with representatives from our partner organizations in Arizona who were among the loudest voices saying, please don't boycott Arizona. Come and stand with us instead. We gathered to protest Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arapio's inhumane tent city jail. The street was filled to overflowing with UUs wearing standing on the side of love t-shirts, waving candles and singing songs of social justice. 
chanting things like, si se puede, yes we can, and some of those chants that you heard earlier. As UU World reported, complaints of cruel and unusual punishment have been lodged against this outdoor complex since Tent City opened in 1993. So it's on the borders of the city. So instead of building more jails that are air-conditioned, they just put tents out in the desert. It's been happening since 93. In the desert heat, temperatures in the tents have reportedly reached 130 degrees. Tent City has been condemned by numerous human rights organizations and given rise to laws, uh, lawsuits charging civil rights violations. The U.S. Department of Justice is suing Arapio and Maricopa County for civil rights violations, including what is said to be the long-standing racial profiling of Latinos and Latinas. But right now, there are people still in those, jail, those tent jails. The protest was um, both exhilarating and emotionally wrenching. Exhilarating because of the gathered crowd's enthusiasm, but wrenching to know how many were suffering in the tent city jail so close beside us. But our presence did help bring more national attention to the situation, contributing to the groundwork that many others have been and continue to do for immigration justice in Arizona. But I think that UUA president Peter Morales was also right to say that the true test of this justice GA, the true test of what we learn, is what our congregations do five years from now. The programming at GA is aimed at raising the capacity of your congregation to engage in local justice issues. To that end, my sermon title is In la Lucha, a Spanish phrase meaning in the struggle which I learned from the late Latina feminist theologian Ada Maria Asasi-Diaz. Dr. Asasi-Diaz emphasized solidarity as the key point in her ethics. It was a similar theme to what we heard voiced repeatedly from our local Latino and Latina partner organizations in Arizona. Don't try to sweep in and solve all our problems, you know, don't come in for a weekend. Don't you bunch of white people come in for a weekend and try to solve our problems. That was, the area, that was the error of colonialism. They said, come and stand beside us. Work with us. Amplify our efforts. And so we did, helping to embody the UU slogan of standing on the side of love. And we, we stood here earlier and, and chanted. And we have this, this beautiful building. But we're out here a little bit on the edges of, of Frederick. So we're in this beautiful place, but sometimes I feel like we need to take the robe off. <laughs> sometimes we need to go out in the street. Sometimes we actually need to act. I'm not going to go on that mic. <laughs> <laughs> How many of y'all saw that movie? <laughs> oh, yeah. You want to see I want to talk about a little bit about how we can stand on the side of love this morning. We may not yet have 2,000 Unitarian Universalists that we can put in these t-shirts and march the streets of Frederick for social justice. But if you're interested in getting more involved with immigration justice, Laura and I have gathered a host of resources that we gathered together at, the, at GA that will be included in an appendix to this sermon in the manuscript version that will be available early next week on our website. But more concretely, I want to highlight for you two related issues that are focal points this fall, two related things that you can do in coming months uh, 
that have been highlighted for us by the UU Legislative Ministry of Maryland. There are two ways uh, that you can directly make a difference in educating others and getting out the vote, even if you don't live in Maryland. If you don't live in Maryland, I'm sure there are issues in your state as well, but you can still help educate uh, and get out the vote with people who do, do live in Maryland. The first directly involves immigration justice. Maryland's DREAM Act, which provides, uh, provides for in-state tuition rates for Maryland's immig- immigrant children, whether documented or undocumented in status, uh, was passed by the General Assembly and signed by Governor O'Malley in t- 2011, but was then petitioned a referendum, uh, and it will be on the general election ballot November 6, 2012. Uh, also in the manuscript version of this sermon, I'll give you the link for the UU Legislative Ministry website so you can educate yourself about this issue and discern how your conscience dictates that you may want to vote or encourage other people to vote or just help educate them as well. Standing on the side of love is also about learning and discerning how to vote on the side of love. It's about helping to change our institution and that dirty, rotten, stinking system that we live in to make the system more humane, more compassionate, more just. Now, along these lines, all the UU ministers in Maryland received a video message in an email last week from UUA President Peter Morales encouraging us to pay attention to referendum number six as well. So in addition to the DREAM Act, referendum six is the Civil Marriage Protection Act, which involves extending the right to marry to same-sex partners in the state of Maryland. I'll provide that link as well where you can learn more about um, the issues surrounding that referendum. You'll also see an invitation in the announcements insert to your order of service, which I invite you not to look at right now, about how to get more involved with this issue in the run-up to the November election. Now, as your pastor, this legislation is particularly significant to me because if it passes, I'll have the right to sign marriage license that happen right here in this sanctuary uh, for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender couples starting on January 1st, 2013. So, yeah, you can get excited about that. Uh, in coming months, you'll hear more from our Social and Environmental Justice Committee about a process that the UCF Board of Trustees approved in June that could potentially help us as a congregation to, to come to consensus around social justice and environmental issues about which we can begin to speak and act with a united congregational voice. Now, there's always the caveat that where there are three UUs, there are four opinions. But the hope is that this process can help us identify social justice issues that at least in part um, three-quarters of us can agree or more can agree are in line with our UU principles. The goal is for us not to just talk about social justice, but to create social change. As with the experience of so many at this year's Justice General Assembly, the hope is that the shift to more social justice acts will will prove life-giving and invigorating for this congregation as we continue to take steps, even tentative steps, toward more social action. I leave you with these words adapted from the Franciscan blessing, from the tradition of that centuries-old social activist, St. Francis of Assisi. May you be blessed. May you be blessed with discomfort. Discomfort at easy answers half-truths, and superficial relationships that you may live deep within your heart. May you be blessed, blessed with anger, 
anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, that you may work for economic justice for all. May you be blessed, blessed with tears. Tears to shed for those who suffer, suffer from pain, hunger, homelessness, and rejection, that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain to joy. And may you be blessed with enough foolishness, enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world and do what others say cannot be done.